This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Last spring, the Department of Defense reversed itself and decided it would exhume the remains of 388 sailors and Marines who died aboard the USS Oklahoma. It sank after being hit by Japanese torpedoes during the attack on Pearl Harbor almost 75 years ago. Only 35 of the men were identified. The rest of the crew members were buried as unknowns at the National Memorial Center Cemetery of the Pacific in Hawaii, known as the Punch Bowl. Edwin Hopkins was one of those sailors. Years later, his cousin, Tom Gray of Guilford, Connecticut, would be among the families to push the DOD to identify the remains and return them to the loved ones for a proper burial. Tom Gray joins me in studio with an update. Hi, Tom. How are you today, Lucy? I'm well. So welcome to Where We Live. Uh, I'll let our listeners know that I first met you in December of 2014 uh, to do a story about your efforts to bring your cousin Edwin Hopkins home. Tell us about Eddie. Uh, Eddie was... uh, 18-year-old boy, uh, joined the Navy in 1940, October, and was assigned to the USS Oklahoma. And unfortunately, he was there uh, for Pearl Harbor and lost his life. Take us back to 1941. Um, Obviously, you weren't there at the time. But um, through the years, how did the family of Eddie Hopkins hear about his death that day? At first, they were just notified that he was missing. And then around February... Uh, they then were notified that he was presumed uh, killed in action. Uh, from that point on, uh, the family, you know, prayed that perhaps he would be returned. His mother never uh, really got over it. And uh, so over the years, my father actually, they're all from Swansea, Key, New Hampshire area. And his older brother and he and my father all were in the service together. And uh After the war, I guess uh, the family basically realized that, you know, except for his mom, that he wasn't coming back. Mm -hmm. And over the years, uh, he was really kept alive. Um, You know, my father obviously talked a lot about him. Uh, My grandfather uh, talked about him, aunts and uncles. And my cousins, uh, they were in the same milieu as I. You know, they, their moms and dads and grandparents – Eddie Hopkins never really died for our family. You know, he he passed on, but his memory was always kept alive by from one generation to the next. And that's what brought me into this search, actually. You told me a few years ago um, that his mother thought that maybe um, Eddie had amnesia and one day he'd be coming home. It must, that must have been tough for the family to... Um, to hear her sentiments um, because she didn't want to accept that he right. was like Right. That was a tough thing. And uh, <clears throat> his, uh, Eddie's dad passed in 1964, and she passed in, I think, 87. So she's quite old. Uh, and all that time, she just thought he was coming home. Uh, on the, and we have a big family cemetery up in New Hampshire. <clears throat> and on their stone, she actually has his name uh, on the stone waiting said, you know, in 1943, she put it on there and said, this is, he'll be coming home, you know. So years later, um, he had a brother who was 90 who died in February of 2008. Then your cousin, Faye Hopkins Bohr, got a phone call in March of 2008. Tell us who called her. Right. Uh, there was an uh, organization called the Oklahoma Family, and it was made up of survivors and their families uh, from the USS Oklahoma. And a fellow by the name of Ray Emery had done an intensive research on the missing unknowns on the Oklahoma and discovered that there were discrepancies in the unknowns, 27 of them. And they did this research, and once they got the names, 
by a fellow by the name of Bob Valley, whose brother was also on the Oklahoma and perished, uh, got in touch with the families of these uh, 27 people. And he had gotten in touch with Faye, my cousin Faye, uh, and she started the process of trying to bring him home and basically in 2008 and then was stonewalled for a couple of years. And then it, without knowing that, I was doing the same thing. So then another cousin let us know, we, we, so we get together on this. And uh, I took it over and, uh, pers- you know, just started the process, which was a long process. So this veteran, Ray Emery, discovered that the 27 sailors that were buried at the Punch Bowl, the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, they had been buried in graves marked unknown, but they'd actually been identified by the Navy in 1943, your cousin included. Exactly. What, what had happened is when they raised it, they, they, they discovered the remains uh, inside. I think there was 330-some-odd remains inside. And they were first buried in Halava Cemetery in uh, Hawaii. And... When they were buried in there, he was desi- his remains were designated as Edwin Hopkins. And in '49, they opened up the Punch Bowl, the National Cemetery of the Pacific. So, getting ready for that, they exhumed these people f- from Halava Cemetery, put them in a mausoleum at Schofield Barracks, and just in preparation for the new cemetery. And then, when they took them out of that and were going to put them into the new cemetery, that's when the train fell off the tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was uh, a big uh, argument between the quartermaster general and the anthropologist that was hired by the Navy to uh, sign off on the remains uh, for these people. And uh, she would sign off on some of the remains, but the quartermaster general decided that they didn't want just some remains. In order to be identified, they had to have all the remains. So this bureaucratic push went back and forth. And ultimately what happened is he was interned uh, in the new cemetery with uh, five other people from this list in one casket, and they were marked unknown. Altogether, there were 27 of these people, and they were in, I think, five different caskets. So back in 2008, when you found out that um, Eddie's remains had been identified, but again, put in a grave marked unknown, I mean, how did, you, how did that make you feel, knowing that that had happened to him and so many other sailors? I have very mixed emotions about it, you know. I, I, I actually, I was not really angry. Well, of course you're angry at first, but actually, what happens if you think about the broader, the broader picture? I mean, it's it's Pearl Harbor. It's the beginning of World War II. There's mass confusion. There's mass death. There's, you know, these things can happen. You know, so once you come to that, then you, you know the anger dissipates, and it's okay where we take it from here. You know, and. Uh, so at the same time, we were grateful, we were angry, a lot of mixed emotions. So then you got involved with your cousin Faye uh, to try to get Eddie, Eddie's remains returned to the family so that right. he could be buried um, in New Hampshire in the family plot. You contacted um, the Connecticut delegation, members of the Connecticut delegation here. Um, how did Senator Murphy and others help in this, um, this, this process? Well, truly, they made it happen. <laughs> You know, I could have written letters until I was 99, but but it actually, what happened is I went to uh, my senator uh, Meyer at the time, and he he introduced me to Sean Scanlon, who's now my state rep, but he at the time worked for Senator Murphy, so we met, got together, and decided uh, that this was a real had to be done. So they crafted a letter in, in Senator Murphy's office and sent it to the whole Senate, the whole and uh, 20 U.S. senators signed on to it, and. 
from that point on, uh, Senator, I also had gotten in touch with Senator uh, Kelly Ayotte's office up in New Hampshire. So between Senator Murphy and Sean Scanlon and Senator Ayotte, they pushed this thing. And the senator signed on to it. Then Senator Blumenthal got really involved with the Department of Defense, you know, handling the heavy-duty uh, requests and things. So from there, it was still uh, the runaround from the Department of Defense. You know, they were going to read. They had to reorganize. They were going to get back to us. You know, and this took a year and didn't really much happen. So then Senator Murphy really got on the, uh, you know, on the warhorse. <laughs> And uh, the uh, assistant secretary, deputy secretary of defense, a fellow by the name of Robert Works, um, who I will forever be grateful uh, to, made the decision that, uh, yes, we were going to uh, raise these people and try and identify them and bring them home. So that was in 2015, just uh, last year. And I'm going to read here, um, you know, until – Last, last year's decision, the Navy had opposed testing um, these remains, citing concerns, quote, that a full DNA testing and accounting could take many years and likely leave many of the missing still unaccounted for. But in a memo that was written by Deputy Defense Secretary Robert Work, um, he said that recent advances in forensic science and technology, as well as family member assistance in providing genealogical information, have now made it possible to make individual IDs for many service members long buried in graves marked unknown. So tell us about that process, how you and Faye, um, you know, shared some of your um, your DNA and genetic material to try to um, convince the government that this this was your relative, Eddie Hopkins. Well, actually, when I, I tried to do that and they told me that it had to be mitochondrial DNA, mm. so they couldn't use mine. So actually, uh, there was a rel- the, the last living person that could provide mitochondrial DNA for Eddie Hopkins was uh, a fellow in his 90s lived up in uh, – I don't even know the man, but I'm a, he's a relative I never met. But in any case, uh, he supplied the DNA. So they've had the DNA for some time. Uh, but ultimately, uh, the, I believe they just did it through dental. Mm, dental records. Yeah. After all this time. Yeah. Um, so I'm speaking with Tom Gray. He lives in Guilford. He's one of uh, many families of the USS Oklahoma um, who had asked the, the Department of Defense to return the remains of their loved ones killed during uh, Pearl Harbor. So last year, you got the news that they were going to exhume the remains. Um, you said that you're eternally grateful to Deputy Defense Secretary Robert Work. Um, I think I remember talking to you that day or soon after you got the call. Tell me right how you felt. Uh how did I feel? Boy, I, I was elated. It, it was great news. Uh, at the same time, uh, I almost felt vindicated because the argument went so long, you know, it went for years. And this process started in 2008. And the the Navy really, in the very beginning, uh, their spokesperson, uh, Lieutenant Commander Flaherty, said that uh, they're not going to disrupt the sanctity of the grave. And, you know, they had one, first we had to get DNA, then they were going to disrupt the sanctity of the grave, then they were going to have an Oklahoma memorial and everybody was going in there. And it just was one, you know, waltz after another. And and time's running out. And, you know, I wrote a letter to the Secretary of the Navy at the time, uh, Ray Mabus, and, you know, explained that, look, you know, it's it's shameful. You know, the the, the remains are, are degrading. It's a 70-year wait. Uh, the people are dying off. They, there's only about, I think, a half a dozen survivors that are even alive today, family members, shipmates. Everybody's leaving this this planet, this earth, 
and this has to be done now. And uh, until really Senator Murphy and uh, Senator Ayotte and Senator Blumenthal got involved, that's what kind of got the stone moving. And I think it's important to note that you know not all families um, of that were that had loved ones die on the Oklahoma wanted the remains back to be buried at home, right? So there's a, a split between some people who felt yes. like they needed to stay at the punch bowl. Right. Well, you know, there's different views. If my uh, great aunt there hadn't really wanted have his name on the stone, maybe he, the push wouldn't have been to bring him home. Maybe it just would have been to identify him and leave him with his own stone out in Hawaii with his shipmates. The, the focus, my personal focus on this is that th- this boy was, uh, he was a, a, a hero. He lost his life tragically at 19 years old. He lived. He, he, he walked this earth. He, 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 he accounted for something. And to just be commingled in an unknown grave with no history and no knowledge other than on paper or on a, on a monument stone in the Oklahoma Memorial, his name's there, uh, I just thought he deserved better than that, you know. And, again, it's an honor to be buried in a national cemetery. I don't take anything away from that. That's a terrific thing. But to be in a commingled grave marked unknown, especially when his family really wanted him home, I think this uh, is something that had to be done. And you've heard from a lot of different people over the last couple of years, even before the Department of Defense reversed its decision, people who may not have uh, a, uh, some kind of connection to World War II. Um, how, why have people responded to you you and, and the other stories? It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And you know, I, I'm in touch with uh, 18 other families across the country. We've kind of are in this together. And I have a, uh, uh, become friendly with a fellow out in Long Island, Kenny Schultz, and his uncle, uh, Kenneth Jane actually was in the same casket as my cousin Eddie. So you you make these relationships, and it becomes – it's just unbelievable. And you're cheering for these other people when they're – out of the 27, they've identified them. Eddie was the 18th to be identified. So every time somebody got identified, you're on the phone, oh, you're emailing, great, great. So – and in the process, the the public actually was amazing, got caught up in it. I've I've made tremendous new friends. People have done amazing things – I had a fellow, George Hoyt, in Clinton, Connecticut, call me, never met the man, had me come to his house, and he was in the Navy when they raised the Oklahoma in 1943 and actually gave me a plaque from the Oklahoma, which is an amazing thing because the Oklahoma's in the bottom of the Pacific Ocean to have something like that. I had uh, a woman, um, uh, uh, Mrs. Schneider, give me, from East Swansea, New Hampshire, send me a picture of Eddie in third grade, uh, Carl Lane was his next-door neighbor and remembers Eddie Hopkins the day before he left for the service. Uh, they were ice skating. He gave him gloves because he didn't have any. And he got in touch and sent me pictures of Eddie Hopkins. I had a Pat Egan from uh, Eastern Massachusetts give me an amazing banner from the Oklahoma from uh, 1936 uh, uh, cruise. Just People like that, to just uh, people write me letters just telling me, try to get in touch with this person or that person, fellow that by the name of uh, Mikhail down in um, Brantford, wrote me a real nice letter. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it goes on and on and on. It's just, it's phenomenal. And so last year, again, the Department of Defense uh, reversed its previous decision, would exhume uh, the remains of the sailors and Marines who died aboard the USS Oklahoma in 1941. Today you have some good news. Would you like to share it with us? Oh, it's the best. Uh, it's a, it's amazing how fate—my father passed away on June 14th, uh, 25 years ago. 
but that's the day they exhumed Eddie Hopkins last year. It was amazing, just that date. Mm-hmm. And uh, they told us it would take a few months to, uh, once they get the casket raised, to identify these folks. And we've uh, just uh, about a month ago received word that he has been identified and that uh, the Navy is going to get in touch with our family and we'll make arrangements, and uh, the Navy the Navy provides the transportation, and we're going to have a full military service and have him uh, buried next to his uh, mother and father up in Keene, New Hampshire, hopefully in September. So did, it's a great ending. Did you think that you would live to see this day? I told the Navy I'm only 64. I said, if I live to be 84, you're going you're gonna to be talking to me for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm just, it's just, it's the most uh, amazing thing. And there's still some classmates and neighbors of Eddie Hopkins that that plan on being there for his burial in New Hampshire. Oh yeah, everybody. Uh, there are so many people that you know through this process that I've that I've come to know that absolutely. I know the senators. Uh, a lot of people want to go, and and it's going to be a, a wonderful day. Edwin Hopkins died December seventh, nineteen forty one. Almost seventy five years later, Tom Gray of Guilford and his extended family will finally be able to give him a proper burial at that family plot in New Hampshire. Tom, thanks so much for sharing news of Eddie's homecoming with us. And thank you, Lucy. We'll be back after a short break. This is Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The state of Connecticut continues to adjust to its new economic reality. This year, hundreds of state workers have been laid off and agencies face budget cuts across the board. But not everyone's taking part in this shared sacrifice. Just last week, the Connecticut Mirror at ctmirror.org reported on hefty raises and bonuses for some top officials at the University of Connecticut. I wanted to stress some of the reporting that the Connecticut Mirror has done. In that report, it found that four senior staff to President Herb Scott raises, and the, the school defends the move by saying the raises were promised by 2013 and 2014. Are you a student or member of the Yukon community? Are you concerned about the pay raises, or do you think there are appropriate ways to keep top-tier staff at the university? We want to hear from you in this segment. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us by phone now is Senate President Martin Looney. Hello, Senator. You're on where we live. Yes, good morning, Lucy. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for joining us today. Um, And one of the reasons I wanted to invite you on is when this news was first reported, we got some statements from you and from outgoing House Speaker Brendan Sharkey. And I don't think I've ever read this in a statement, but I'm going to read it. Literally, the first few words was, you've got to be kidding me. That was your statement when you heard. Um, Tell us your reaction. Well, I think that uh, part of the statement expresses the uh, degree of uh, consternation that uh, uh, that I felt, that many of us, I think, in the General Assembly felt after all of the, the budget struggles uh, of the state of Connecticut had gone through this year, the terrible and painful cuts that uh, that had to be imposed throughout state government on every program and every service and uh, layoffs of people happening at uh, all levels of state government and this very painful process to keep our budget in balance because uh, the revenues had not uh, reached expectations. Despite that, uh, uh, it seems that, uh, that uh, UConn was... Uh, living in some sort of vacuum and to uh, 
grant these kinds of raises at this time just uh, just seem to be uh, just uh, kind of shockingly uh, isolated from what's going on in the rest of the world of state government. I think one of your colleagues, maybe it was Brendan Sharkey, uh, outgoing House Speaker, said it was tone deaf. <clears throat> at the very least, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, I want to, again, reiterate uh, the U- University of Connecticut declined to join us on the show today, but spokesperson Stephanie Reed sent a statement defending these pay increases. Quote, pay for these employees was set in 2013 and 2014. This staff was responsible for helping to run a $2.3 billion enterprise. It goes on to say, just as our first-rate coaches are rightly paid according to national benchmarks, so are our academic, medical, and administrative leaders. This small number of leadership salaries has no meaningful impact on UConn's overall budget, workforce, or tuition rates. Do you buy that, Senator Maloney? No, I don't. Not at, not at all. Uh, because while in, in normal times, perhaps, uh, that might be uh, <clears throat> a, a reasonable defense and an explanation uh, in the current situation that it is not a compelling uh, or persuasive argument uh, at all. It's uh, It would be uh, almost analogous to saying that for someone who had planned a, uh, just because someone had planned a trip, say, uh, a car trip of a couple of hundred miles and waking up in the morning when the trip was supposed to begin, uh, finding that there was a uh, uh, a terrible blizzard underway with uh, with high winds and snow and said, well, we're committed to it anyway, so let's go ahead. And if we get stuck in a snowbank along the way, let's hope that somebody rescues us before we freeze to death. You know, there are times when circumstances change. So I think that this uh, argument that, well, this was done back in 2013 and 2014, um, uh, is really irrelevant to the fact that uh, we're uh, dealing with the budget crisis that we uh, that we have been in 2015 and 16. And, and no, just earlier this legislative session, uh, the Yukon Professional Employees Association had to withdraw its contract proposal uh, with raises of up to 4.5% yearly because that was going to be rejected by the legislature. Uh, you mentioned the budget deficit um, in your remarks. Uh, nearly 1,000 state employees have lost their jobs this year. So it does really seem like a strange time for Yukon to say, well, we promised them in 2013 and 14, and these are vital um, staff members, so we must give them these uh, pretty big pay hikes. Well, I think that's uh, that's exactly the the point. Is that <clears throat> uh, these individuals are quite well compensated as uh, as it is, and uh, uh, this was not the time to make that uh, that large increase, especially uh, given the fact that the the contract for the the UConn non professional employees was uh, w- was about to be voted down if it had been actually come to a vote uh, in the state senate because of the budget crisis we were facing. Are you a member of the Yukon community or a student? We want to hear from you in this conversation. 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Senator Looney, it's interesting, too, with just the timing of this. um, You know, what's the message to students who face a 31% tuition hike over the next four years? Well, I think it is uh, one that obviously will be very disturbing to students and their families facing uh, a 31 percent uh, tuition hike over the next uh, the next several years uh, uh, concerns about uh, uh, being able to um, uh, uh, to meet those obligations concerns about access to financial aid uh, and then to have uh, this happen at that time now while you know, while they say uh, obviously in the aggregate the the amount of money involved in these raises is uh, a relatively small percentage of the overall budget it it does uh, UConn's overall budget it ju- just does show that that uh, UConn seems to have been sort of fundamentally um, out of touch with the way uh, uh, people really are feeling and perceiving things right now. 
So is this a, just an example of, of people voicing their um, dismay and, and criticism? But what can be done? I mean, what have you asked uh, UConn President Herbst uh, um, in terms of responding to, I guess, people's anger about the timing of these pay, these pay raises and bonuses? Well, in the, in the statement that I released last week, I, I urged uh, President Herbst to reconsider uh, and to rescind these untimely raises. Uh, but also going, going forward, I think that... Uh, what has happened here will have uh, two potential consequences uh, for Yukon. One uh, almost certain and the other one uh, potential. The one I think that's certain is that uh, the legislature will be uh, somewhat more skeptical of, uh, of Yukon administrators when they come to us uh, next year looking for uh, to talk about their budget or talking about uh, things that they, uh, that they may need or making financial projections. And uh, in, in the wake of this, I think that uh, uh, there has been a, a perception that they were the uh, sort of an, an outlier in state government. Uh, if you compare other, the judicial branch suffered major cuts. All of the judges of the Superior Court and the Appellate Court and the Supreme Court were scheduled to get raises on July 1st because, again, they were adopted in previous years, but the budget this year postponed those raises. So that uh, uh, so all other aspects of state government saw significant cuts applied, and yet uh, uh, UConn considered itself uh, exempt in this area. So I think that's going to be damaging to the university when they come, you know, lobbying for their uh, budget-related issues next year. The other potential harm would be that the, the backlash against this might cause uh, legislators uh, to want to reduce, to some extent, UConn's autonomy over their own budget and have some more direct control over uh, over the operations of UConn in terms of its uh, uh, operating budget and how decisions get made. And why hasn't that happened in the past? Well, in the past, there was a, there was a sense that uh, the university uh, uh, was uh, uh, responsible for managing its funds, going back to the bonding funds of uh, the Yukon 2000 and 21st Century Yukon. Uh, there was greater flexibility given to Yukon in uh, selecting projects to be uh, accomplished under that, and uh, along with that went some greater overall uh, autonomy in uh, in the budget process. But uh, again, this is the sort of thing that uh, could cause the legislature to rethink that to some extent. Your Senate president, is this something that you would propose in the next session? Well, it's certainly something that I would uh, consider proposing in the next session. I wanted to take some tweets from our listeners. Um, a tweet from Aaron, she writes, or he writes, UConn is asking us to furlough while giving raises to some of the highest paid individuals. Another tweet from Chris, uh, President Herbst needs to do her job raising the endowment to pay for these raises and other important expenses like academics. If you're part of the Yukon community, you can give us a call at 860-275-7266, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, Senator Looney, I wanted to ask you about how uh, this pay, um, these pay increases and, and bonuses were set. Um, as the Connecticut Mirror reported, these, these were letters that were sent to these four employees several years ago, and they're be, being treated, these letters, as employment agreements. And since um, these are promises in writing, would the state and university set itself, for any, set itself up for any legal repercussions if they were, were reneged on these agreements? I, I don't believe so. I given the fact that the uh, the economic uh, assumptions on which those uh, uh, letters and promises were based um, have changed uh, substantially uh, over the last uh, few years. Obviously, our budget process this year, uh, uh, the crisis that we face is because our revenues have not hit projected levels. And some some people have asked us to uh, advocate uh, raising the income tax uh, again on, on wealthy individuals and. Ignoring the fact that we just uh, did that the previous year, in 2015, there was an increase where the highest levels of the state income tax went to 
uh, 6.99%. And in addition to that, it meant that uh, the wealthiest individuals were paying uh, that tax from dollar one of taxable income rather than just in, in increments as everyone else does. Everyone else pays, a, in effect, a blended rate where uh, you pay, you have exemptions at the lower end and then certain credits and then lower rates that apply and higher rate and higher levels of income. But despite that increase in 2015, it was projected to bring in an additional 250, around 250 or 300 million. The income tax actually brought in over $800 million less uh, than projected. So the reality is, the painful reality, I think, is that right now, given the volatility of the situation, we probably could not uh, predict with any degree of accuracy or certainty how much we would have to raise the income tax in order to raise a given amount of revenue. Mm. Um, I wanted to bring up, you had mentioned you'd asked um, President Herbst to rescind uh, these uh, raises. I mean, have you heard anything from her office? Uh, no, I have not. And again, in, in some of the reporting that's been done on this, um, also President Herbst um, is getting a nearly $30,000 pay raise or has received that in January. Another $125,000 bonus in May, a due for another bonus, another $40,000 bonus this summer. Um, the Hartford Current reported in an editorial that pointed out, actually, that previous UConn presidents have declined raises and bonuses during the economic slump, such yes, as... Yes, I think that was a, a fine example that was set by President Philip Austin, mm -hmm. uh, who declined raises a couple of times during uh, uh, economic downturns. But uh, the, the concern here is that uh, this really... Uh, 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 it seems to indicate that we have thought that uh, in higher ed there would be a particular uh, sensitivity to uh, lessons learned from the experiences of uh, of uh, former President uh, Hogan and uh, Chancellor Gray of the uh, uh, state university system and, and the, uh, the controversy regarding their uh, undisciplined spending. Uh, one would have thought that it would have left a, a more lasting impact on, on decisions uh, regarding raises for administrators that uh, at, in higher education, and those are fairly recent examples of, uh, um, of significant uh, criticism directed at, uh, uh, at, at those individuals for spending decisions that they made. We're getting another tweet from a listener. Jeff um, asks, uh, does, does Senator Looney support well above average post-retirement benefits for state employees, which has a much higher impact on us than these, uh, these UConn pay hikes recently? What do you think, Senator? Well, I think that uh, we have a pension system that is uh, has been adjusted in recent years that ever since two, we have uh, uh, our uh, most generous pension system, uh, uh, Tier 1, and, uh, ended in 1984. Every pension plan adopted since then has been less generous uh, in terms of benefits, and especially the one that was adopted in 2011 as part of the package of concessions with state employees means that employees hired after that uh, will have uh, significantly less generous pensions than those hired before that. Aren't there some issues, though, with how um, employees are able to work a certain amount of hours to kind of boost up that pension? Is there any cap that will be placed on that? Well, this year, as part of the budget, we did place a, a cap on the, uh, uh, the, the size of a, of a pension at $125,000. And um, I wanted to ask you, since we're talking a little bit more about general budget questions, you know, the General Assembly passed its its budget, and then just a couple of weeks ago, or actually maybe last week, OPM said that because income tax receipts are down yet again, the state will likely have to borrow from the rainy day fund. So my question, Senator, I mean, what else can lawmakers do to help right-size Connecticut's budget crisis? It doesn't seem like it's getting any better, and now that we're going to be pulling money out of the rainy day fund, I mean, what other, what other solutions are there? If it's not more taxes on the wealthy, what is it? Well, I think we have to, uh, to look at, at a range of things. We made significant cuts uh, this year. There will be some, uh, I think, uh, uh, cuts again uh, going forward, but we have to look at 
at other aspects of uh, of our revenue structure, I think, and uh, um, see what if there are other other uh, ways we had. Uh, uh, there are other ways, perhaps, of, of uh, raising uh, revenue that are not, not strictly taxes. There are ways of uh, uh, of adjusting uh, uh, fee schedules and things of that nature going forward. But uh, uh, we have uh, the, the ongoing challenges that our, our basic structure has not generated the revenue that we had uh, projected it would. And, and we uh, have additional concerns now with what happened in uh, in Great Britain, uh, withdrawing from the European Union, the effect that may have on the stock market, and of course. Uh, that could also affect our investment returns and uh, uh, have a negative impact on our budget as well. There were some criticisms when uh, Governor Malloy and the legislature uh, brought in Kino. Um, we're hearing reports that that's doing better than initially expected. Um, what are you hearing about that revenue from Kino? Well, I think that's one of the few bright spots uh, in our revenue structure uh, recently, uh, that it does seem to be um, doing pretty well and bringing in more than the projected amount of revenue. So, um, Senator uh, Looney, before you go, I mean, what's the, I guess, the message? I know we want to just turn back to why we invited you on, and that's to talk about the these ridiculous, from what people are saying, when they look at how certain senior staff at UConn are getting these huge bonuses and, and pay hikes during a time of economic, uh, you know, problems. I mean, is, can anything be done, or is this just, uh, you know, opposition for a few weeks and then more business as usual? Oh, well, well, as I said, I think people will remember this uh, if the uh, university stands by these raises and doesn't uh, uh, back away from them, that uh, that it will create a somewhat more skeptical atmosphere uh, 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 toward UConn next session uh, when they come back in uh, talking about their budget requests. Um, I think we have a call coming in, and we just have a, a just under a minute, so I'm just going to read what John from Store says. He says, no matter what the current behavior, uh, the Yukon should have increased oversight as a matter of principle, or maybe he's talking about the legislature, but we're going to have to leave it there, and apologies to John from Stores for not having time to take your call. I want to thank Senate President Martin Looney for joining Where We Live. Thank you so much, Senator. Thank you, Lucy. Good to be with you. When we return, a conversation with author Susan Eaton, who has written a new book about the work done by local communities to welcome immigrants and refugees to their new homes. This is Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Immigration is a hot-button issue in this presidential election cycle, and it was part of the reason the U.K. left the European Union last week. But as much as it's played up on a national and international stage, local communities do a lot of the frontline work. Susan Eaton is director of the Sillerman Center for the Advancement of Philanthropy at the Heller School at Brandeis University. In her new book, Integration Nation, Immigrants, Refugees, and America at Its Best, Eaton profiles those local communities bringing in immigrants and refugees. She was in Hartford last month and spoke with WNPR's Diane Orson. Susan Eaton, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you, Diane. It's wonderful to be here. Your book takes us on a journey to visit local communities with what some people may find to be sometimes surprising and really creative responses to a growing number of immigrants in their communities. And you were just here in Connecticut to talk at Asylum Hill Congregational Church in Hartford. I wonder if we could just begin by your 
talking a little bit about the role of organized religion or even more broadly religious understanding in the integration of refugees and immigrants and communities? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question and one that people don't often ask me uh, because a lot of the stories in the book aren't necessarily about faith, although there are a couple um, in there that are faith-based efforts. Um, but a lot of times refugee resettlement uh, programs uh, rely very heavily uh, upon churches in the local communities to kind of get refugees started and to move the process along of, of integration. Uh, and churches and other religious organizations have played a huge role in um, in terms of volunteering in the absence of policy and government programs that are sustainable. A lot of the initiatives across the country rely on people um, from religious and faith-based organizations to, to step in and run ESL programs, to provide and to find and uh, make homes for refugees and immigrants when they come, to just simply have a model of kindness and welcoming that is a part of the integrity that underlies their lives that come from religious values um, have played a really important part and can be a role for everybody, even people like me who aren't necessarily very religious. Well, I was particularly struck in the first chapter by um, your visit to Utah where um, a Mormon community there helped to generate a real substantial change throughout the state in terms of uh, very practical changes in the in the classroom, um, dual immersion programs for English-Spanish students um, that really emanated, in fact, from a community that has quite conservative values in some ways, and um, it was so refreshing. Yeah, it's a, it's a really great story, and again, like you said in the beginning, it is a, a place that surprises a lot of people. Um, in 2002, Utah hosted the Olympics, and um, before 2002, unlike many other Western states, there hadn't been a lot of immigration to Utah, people settling in Utah, Latinos in particular. Um, but when the Olympics started, there was a need for jobs. There was a need for infrastructure rebuilding, and it created a lot of jobs. So immigrants started moving oftentimes from those other Western states to Utah. And what happened surprised a lot of people is that immigrants disliked it there, and they decided to stay. Uh, and also because of the uh, changes in the infrastructure and the highway and the roads, it was a lot easier, too, now for immigrants who had jobs in places like Park City, the recreation areas, the service industry around Salt Lake, to live in rural communities that had not only always been all white, well, before Native Americans anyway, after Native Americans anyway, but also all Mormon. Uh, and I talked to people who said, you know, I had never, not only had I never met anybody who wasn't white, I had never met anybody who wasn't Mormon. So these marked huge changes in these communities, and educators there did what educators all over the country do in the beginning, is they separated the, the Spanish-speaking students from the English-speaking students, and they were taught separately. I uh, started to realize that wasn't working very well. It wasn't working from an educational standpoint. It wasn't working from a social cohesion, co cohesion connectedness standpoint. Uh, and educators began taking interest in two-way immersion programs that were existed across the country, including some in Connecticut here, that brought uh, speakers of la languages other than English and speakers of English together to not only learn together, but to actually learn in each other's languages and to help teach each other languages. And this program and other language uh, immersion programs were supported by the state of Utah through a law in 2008 
that gave grants to local school districts to start these programs. They've become wildly popular in uh, suburbs that are changing and rural communities that are changing and then also in the cities like Salt Lake and Park City. Uh, and you you know, hear now very conservative Republican lawmakers speaking in very strong support of what is essentially, you know, a very, uh, what some people would call a very extreme form of bilingual education. So it's, it's lovely to see. So your book focuses on local communities. Um, the, a lot of the discussion and debate, particularly in the political climate at the moment, has been at the national level. And I just wonder if we could talk for a moment about that. What, you know, what do you see as the impact of local policies versus national policies on immigration? And um, what do you think the role of national policies should be? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, in the United States, unlike a lot of other um, countries that welcome large numbers or large shares of their population as immigrants, most of the discussion at the federal level is about who gets to stay and who needs to go and how do we make people stay where they are and not come over here and who do we let in that we want in. And um, there's really not, there's hardly any policy or certainly any effort that is about how do we ensure that immigrants uh, become prosperous, become engaged in their communities, become committed to their communities, and um, are full integral members of their of their community for everybody's benefit. And so to the extent that this happens at all, this process of what I call integration and many people call integration, uh, does happen, as you said, on the local level. So I think and there's a lot very impressive happening on the local level with very little support from federal and state governments oftentimes. Um, and I think what would be helpful is more federal policies and programs and attention that would support these programs. And this could include more competitive grant programs. It could mean, you know, one or two, an office at the federal level that is that is um, concerned with immigrant integration and uh, where local and state officials could go to get resources and technical assistance to starting good programs. There's a lot more that could be done that I don't think would be terribly controversial either. So your book came out a few months ago, but I have to ask you, um, given all the rhetoric flying (laughs) around at this point, if you were writing the book today, would you tell a slightly different story or would you set the book against a somewhat different backdrop? We, our country, like most countries, it's a. I think of it as, um, as a both a pendulum and a kind of like a, a tug of war in a sense, where there's two impulses in the country. I mean, this is this is sort of almost like a scandalous generalization, right? Where we have the impulse to be welcoming and kind and to to have a bigger table, um, and then there's another Im- existing impulse, which is about you know building a wall and building fences and being afraid of things that are different or foreign. And I think that they're always at war. And what's sad is that the media focuses, I think, um, and kind of fans the flame more often of the conflict narrative of um, the build the wall and the stupid, you know, hateful things that stupid people say and ignorant people and xenophobic people. And there's less attention on these small efforts that represent, I think, just as powerful an impulse in our country. 
Uh, and I think that, you know, it's unfortunate to hear Donald Trump spewing his garbage, but it's also unfortunate that there's so much focus on it, that, and that's what's giving it its power and its strength, I think, and makes it, makes it scary. And I think also it becomes a, a distortion of, of reality of the country. This country is much more varied and much more complex than the coverage of our national politics would suggest. Um, that's not to say that I don't think that there's horrible discrimination that immigrants face, that there are huge challenges facing immigrants, that there's a tremendous amount of xenophobia and fear of the foreign in our country. It's just that, you know, we, you have to be able to emphasize and understand the positive things that are going on and have a vision of what we want to build as opposed to just what we want to be against. And that's what I tried to do with this book. When so many municipalities are struggling to make ends meet, meet their obligations, what is the argument to help immigrants rather than focusing first on U.S. citizens? Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that is a, almost like a false um, separation because when you help immigrants, you help everybody. I mean, and especially in a lot of places where you are seeing, say, tax revenues declining, a lot of the reason that the tax revenues are declining is because there's a reduction in the population and there's not as much growth. Immigrants actually bring growth, especially to a place like Connecticut, for example, which is seventh in the nation in the share of growth that's attributed to immigrants, to the foreign-born. Connecticut relies on immigrants for growth, for maintaining a healthy tax base. Um, immigrants also tend to be much younger than the U.S.-born population, much more likely to be of working age and generating those tax dollars that are going to support people who are elderly who tend to be U.S.-born. Um, but on the other hand, I also think that those two things don't need to be separated, U.S.-born versus immigrants. And especially like when I look at the state of Mississippi, for example, where a coalition of African-Americans, progressive whites, and immigrants work together to prevent an anti-immigration law from passing. And this also, they also created a coalition not around just immigrant rights, but things like fair wages, safe working conditions, um, adequate health care, access to equal levels of schooling. And these were things that benefited everybody, that everybody need, needed. And so the more that you can see the struggles as being common, I think the more powerful it is. And oftentimes, you know, you see a lot of resentment also, um, oftentimes among working class people, sometimes among, you know, African American communities. And, and there's, there's a kind of um, cynicism that sets in, say, where a politician will set African-Americans or working-class whites against the immigrants and say, oh, your wages aren't going up because it's that group over there, when really the struggle is with the corporation that's exploiting the immigrants <laughs> and paying immigrants very little. Um, it's not with the immigrant, him or herself. And so c campaigns in places like North Carolina and Mississippi were able to um, – use that message, I think, for much more inclusive organizing efforts that benefited everybody. Um, and I think that, that that's one way where you can, you know, make people see that that distinction between the U.S. born and the immigrant is really a false one. What do you think is the most important message 
you would like to get out from this book? This is a really exciting time for the country. Uh, the nation is going through tremendous changes um, as a result of, of immigration in large part, um, as a result of African Americans moving from traditional uh, urban areas, for example. So we see city, we see small cities, we see towns, we see rural areas changing culturally, linguistically in all kinds of ways. We see new energy coming about, create, creativity abounds um, because, of, because of immigration, because of the demographic changes. And I think that this is something that if we choose to embrace and um, be positive about it, has huge benefits for everybody. Um, I think that um, immigration is a good thing uh, economically, and it's a good thing for our culture. And we have all, the United States is not one monocultural place. It, it's not, it never has been. There might be an illusion that it is. Um, it's a forever changing place. And if communities go into that um, reality with their eyes open um, and plan and try to find and build on the assets that immigrants bring to their new communities, um, then everybody will be better off. Susan Eaton, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That was Susan Eaton speaking to WMPR's Diane Orson. Eaton's new book is called Integration Nation, Immigrants, Refugees, and America at Its Best. She was in Hartford last month speaking at the Asylum Hill Congregational Church. Our show is produced by Tucker Ives and Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's digital editor is Heather Brandon. And the executive producer is Katie Talarski. You can continue this conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.